You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Well, I ask you to remain standing while we read the Word. If you're not able to stand, by all means, you can sit. Over the next few weeks, I'll be asking you to do this. Just, uh, just honor God's Word. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 9, if you're a guest with us today, we're glad you're here. If you're checking in online for, very, for the very first time, we're glad that you're here. And uh, as you're checking in online, you'll see that there's a, a box there that you can type in prayer request. If you have a response during the uh, service today, we have someone that is ready to engage with you there. And of course, uh, in the weeks ahead, reach out to us. Check in on our website. All of our contact information is there. We'd love to connect with you wherever you are and wherever you're checking in from. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I, I, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades or hell. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, I pray that you give me strength this morning. I know, Father, that you'll provide that when I ask for it. I feel like my voice is about to go, and in the first service, Lord, took everything out of me. So, Father, help me to settle down into your word, because, Lord, it's vastly important, eternally important, what you have to say to us this morning. So, Father, give me your strength. Give the strength to these folks to hear, to understand, and to apply. Father, we're not here just to hear and know more about your word. We're here to have a life change from the inside out. So even now, Lord, we ask for that. And Father, we ask that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, even the motivations of our heart, the motivation of why we're here today, the motivation for why we do what we do, Lord, I pray that that you would give us a heart check on the motivations. 
The Lord, may our words, may our motivations, the intentions of our heart, may they all be acceptable unto you. We ask this in the name of our King, our Savior, our Lord, who's soon coming. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. You might have heard of a guy by the name of Marco Polo. Maybe you hear it a lot when your kids are in the swimming pool. Uh, but this guy was a world traveler, and, and he, uh, there's a story about his life that I want to share with you this morning. Marco Polo, at age 17, travels to China. He was not the first European to step on the shores of China, but uh, his dad and uncles probably were the first. His dad and his uncles, after a long journey, come home, and he's got this teenage son named Marco, so he gets Marco and takes him back to China at age 17. And when they get to China, at this time in history, there's a guy by the name of Kublai Khan. He is the grandson of Genghis Khan. And this empire is unlike anything anyone had ever seen. I mean, the wealth and just the sheer size of the temples and the palaces were unlike anything, especially that these men had ever seen. As a matter of fact, Marco Polo described one of the emperor's palaces as being larger than an entire city of where he's from. When they get to China, and of course, this is a Mongolian empire that has now unified all the provinces of China under this Mongol leader. Marco's dad does something surprising. He offers his son Marco as a servant in Kublai Khan's kingdom. And Kublai Khan takes Marco in, and what's interesting about Marco is he's, he's learned several languages and he's shown aptitude in being able to learn languages. One of the problems that Kublai Khan had was, although he was the emperor of the entire unified nation of China, he was having problems in the Chinese territory because he couldn't speak the local dialect. So Marco would become this political agent within Kublai Khan's empire, and he would send him, Marco, all over the Chinese empire as one of his politicians. And as Marco's there, he's acquiring the languages, he's acquiring the culture. It would be 24 years before he would make it back home. And once he gets back home, he's already begun writing all of his stories down of what he saw. And when he gets back home, he doesn't even recognize his own community. And in fact, he even has trouble speaking the language of his people because he's been in China for so long. Well, he begins to share, obviously, the stories of what he saw under Kublai Khan in this incredible, powerful territory called China. And people were very interested about it because of the Silk Road. And people were hearing about the spices and all of the wealth. And Marco would begin to share the stories of just how big the emperor's palace was. He would say that the emperor's palace was so big that he had a dining room that could seat 6,000 people and that every one of those people could eat off of a golden platter. Now, of course, this is what Marco experienced firsthand. But when he came back home and began to tell his kinsmen of his journeys, guess what? They didn't believe it. They called him a liar. Marco's mother named him Mark or Marco after the writer of the gospel of Mark. She wanted him to be an evangelist. She wanted him to share the gospel. But he ended up being a world traveler, and no one believed any of his stories when he got home. And he would keep telling these stories and telling these stories, and no one believed him. And in fact, they kept telling him that he should repent 
That he, he, should, he should quit lying about his experiences. Even up to the moment of his deathbed, he's, he's lying on his deathbed, and he's got family and friends in the room, and they're telling Marco, Marco, will you not finally tell the truth? Will you not finally own up that all these stories you've been telling, well, you exaggerated, you made them up. And on Marco's dying bed, this is what he said. He says, I have not even told you half of what I saw. John said something very similar in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, verse 30, John says there in his Gospel that, 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 that he didn't record everything that Jesus did and said. That, that Jesus did miracles and Jesus taught things that we never had documented in any of the Gospels. And as you read the Gospels, you notice there's, there's different things that different Gospel writers focus on. It's because of who they were writing to and the purpose of which they were writing. But John says in his gospel that they didn't write down everything. And then at the end of his gospel, chapter 21, verse 25, he says this. And he exaggerates. This is a little bit of what we would call hyperbole. He's really blowing our minds. He says this. He says, if we had written down everything that Jesus did and said, the world could, could not contain the books that would take up so much space the world cannot contain it. Now, of course, what does John want us to know? John wants us to know that he hasn't even told us half of the story of Jesus. But what we have in the New Testament is all that we need to put our faith in this king. And then what John is going to write in the book of Revelation, and what we have before us today is a difficult text. It's one that should make us wonder and awe but one we need to pay attention to. Maybe you've been to a fair or maybe you've been to a carnival and maybe when you walked in there were people had easels set up in these uh, paintings. And what they'll do is they'll, you pay 20 bucks or 30 bucks and you can sit down and have your spouse sit in a chair and they'll draw what's known as a caricature of your spouse. And you're standing over here watching them draw on the easel and you're kind of laughing because the features are exaggerated. You know, if they were to draw me, I'd have a huge head and of course, a huge nose, look at that thing, man, from a side profile. It's profound, is it not? Got that from my mom. So if, if you're watching me get drawn in a caricature, my, my features are going to be exaggerated. But when you look at that caricature, you can recognize a little bit that it's me, but ultimately it's not really me. It's not a clear representation of who I am. Well, here's the problem, folks. Just as we said last week, there's a whole mountain of grandeur of Jesus that we've never even begun to explore, but here's the other problem. My concern is, is that you have a caricature of Jesus in your mind, and it has nothing to do with the Jesus of the New Testament. There's some things that are similar. There, there's some images that might fit, but ultimately what you have is distorted. What you have and what you're looking at, and, and maybe even the Jesus that you're following is not the Jesus of the New Testament. Maybe you've acquired some things from culture. Maybe you've added some things in yourself. Maybe there's some things you don't like about Jesus, so you just leave those out. But what you have is a caricature. You don't have the real Jesus. And my real, real deep concern is that you're putting your faith in a Jesus that's not even the Jesus that died for you. Wouldn't that be awful? Wouldn't it be terrible to not realize that to the day you stand before him and he says, I never knew you? What John is going to experience, we need to experience today. We, 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 need, to, 
We need to experience this moment with John because I think what it will do is it will begin to erase the caricature in your mind, the distorted images of Jesus in your mind. And by the way, we're going to be working on that on the many weeks ahead. But I think what John sees and what he writes down for us here, one of the goals that I see in this is for us to get rid of all the garbage, the mistruths, the untruths about Jesus, and let's for a moment see Jesus for who he really is. The awe and the beauty and the power and the majesty. And it's this Jesus that you will stand before one day. You will see him one day. Doesn't matter if you're an atheist. Doesn't matter if you hate the church with a passion. Doesn't matter if somebody drug you here today because we were acknowledging Teacher's Day and you wanted to be here for that, but otherwise you would never step foot in this place. You're tuning in today, you would have never tuned in unless somebody talked you into it, but deep down inside, you don't even believe that God exists. Trust me when I tell you, and what I will prove to you over the weeks ahead, you will bow the knee before this king we're going to look at this morning. And I would encourage you to bow that knee now before it's too late. So let's take a look at what John wrote in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now look at what John writes as he begins to turn his focus upon this vision that he had. He says to these seven churches, now remember he's writing to seven literal churches in a place called Asia Minor that was part of the Roman Empire. And John says to them, he says, now look, I am your brother. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that the church over in Asia Minor, y'all got y'all's thing going on, and I've got my thing going on here in the Isle of Patmos. No, we are together. Church, Hyde Park Church, we are brothers and sisters with churches all over the world that are preaching the same gospel, preaching the same truth. It is not us against them. It is us together. We are brothers and sisters. And my goodness, I would love to see the churches in Robinson County start acting like brothers and sisters. Because I'm afraid we're in competition with one another, and that's ungodly, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's a sin. We're to be working together. We're brothers and sisters. We're not pitted against one another. If we're standing upon God's Word and the Gospel, the real Jesus of the Scriptures, then we should be working together. Nonetheless, John says, I am your brother, but he also says, I am your partner. You see that word partner has this word that we're in this together. We're kind of yoked up together. John is on the Isle of Patmos. These churches are 70, 80, even 100 miles away from him. But what John is doing here is he's saying, not only are we in this together, but we're in a partnership. What kind of partnership? Well, I hate to bust your bubble, but it's a partnership of pressure, tribulation. You see that word tribulation? Now, he's not talking about the tribulation. We as, you've been in church anytime, anytime you see the word tribulation, you immediately start thinking end times. We'll get there. For now, he's talking about pressure, that's what the word means. John would have certainly thought, and his readers would have certainly thought about, when John used this Greek word, the idea of a wine press or an olive press that they would have put under intense pressure to squeeze the oil and the juices out. So, so John says, we are partners in trouble. We are partners in pressure. We are in the wine press together, and we're feeling it. The churches in Asia Minor are feeling it. John is feeling it. Not only are we partners in tribulation, but we are partners in the kingdom. We have one king, and he's not the emperor. He's not Domitian. We have one king, and there's one kingdom. That kingdom that, we, that he's part of, that these seven churches are part of, that they are partners in, is not the Roman Empire. 
I am not part of a kingdom of the United States. I am part of a kingdom of Jesus Christ who died and gave his life's blood for it. I happen to be a resident of the United States. I love the United States. I love the Constitution, but make no mistake about it. This is not my permanent home. I have another home, a kingdom. John says we're in that kingdom together. Notice what else he says. He says we are in patient endurance together. (laughs) In other words, John just says we're just going to put our heads down and we're going to follow this king. It does not matter what Domitian does. It doesn't matter what he throws at us. He's not our king. Jesus is. So we're going to patiently endure. We're going to patiently endure. But then John says this, and it just, just blows up this whole idea Once again, I've tried to blow it up every time I see it, but this whole idea of a prosperity gospel, notice what he says. He says, a partner in tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance, notice this, that are in Jesus. What? Yes, in Jesus. When you put your faith in him and you came from darkness and light, guess what you signed up for? Pressure, (laughs) tribulation, we have a whole host of churches in America right now that are, that are compromising every aspect of Christianity just so they can't appease the culture. And the reason they're doing it is because they want to have a comfortable existence. They want to have a big mega whatever. They want to have a bunch of money in their budget. They want to have a bunch of money sitting in their pews. They want to have a bunch of people louding and talking about how great the church is down on the corner because the church down on the corner has accepted everything the culture has thrown out them. And in doing so, they become very comfortable. And yes, they may have some money, and yes, they may have a bill, but I'll tell you what they don't have. They don't have a church. They don't have a living body of Christ because they abandoned that the very moment they abandoned the man who died to make the church possible. So, John says, we are partners Because we are in Christ. We are partners in pressure. We are partners in the kingdom. We are partners in persecution. And just so those seven churches know, John says, let me tell you about where I am right now. John says he was on the island called Patmos. Patmos is an island out in the middle of the Aegean Sea, and it's 70 miles southwest of Ephesus. Ephesus would be the nearest church that he's writing to to where he is. This island is six miles wide, 10 miles long. It's basically a barren wasteland. It is mountainous, very rocky. But let me tell you what a day in the life of John looks like on the Isle of Patmos. John is sleeping on a slab of rocks. He only has, the only thing he owns is the clothes on his back, and there are very few at that. In the nights on the Isle of Patmos, it would get very cold because of all the ocean breeze blowing across that island. Storms would be very frequent. And he's out in the elements. Only thing he has is the clothes on his back. He's going to get woken up early in the morning. He's going to work all day at the hands of a taskmaster, a Roman guard, who will beat you with a whip if you do anything wrong. They're going to give you barely enough food to survive. And then, get this, John is 90 plus years old. He's an elderly man. And this is his life on the Isle of Patmos. So he's certainly... The churches need to know that he is absolutely in the partnership with their son. John is not in some palace somewhere eating the food of a king. He's laying on a pile of rocks on the Isle of Patmos suffering every moment of his life. And he says to the churches in Asia Minor, I'm a partner with you. And all of this is, why? Why is John on the Isle of Patmos? 
Look at what he says. He says, I'm here on the Isle of Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So yes, in Christ, there is suffering. If you're trying to figure out how to reconcile comfort with following Jesus, let me tell you, many have tried and all have failed. I told you this before as we're saying, God is far more concerned about your holiness than he is your comfort. You'd be surprised that God is not all that concerned about you being comfortable while you're a pilgrim on this earth. What he is concerned about is your obedience and your faith in him. So John says, I'm a partner. Verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? Well, John says that he was in the spirit. As we look through the Bible, we will find times Paul had this experience. You go all the way back to Abraham. He had an experience, although it wasn't worded exactly the same way. John says that whatever he's about to see next was because he was in the spirit. Does this, was he in a trance? Was he in a dreamlike state? Well, what's going on? Yes, all of that, and we're still not exactly sure. What we are sure of is that when he uses this phrase four times in the book of Revelation, and every time he uses it, one here, he uses it again in chapter 4, verse 2. He uses it again in chapter 17, verse 3. And he uses it again in chapter 21, verse 10. Every time he uses it, he has an unveiling or a, or a, a, a vision of incredible magnitude every time. So yes, John is in some kind of trance-like state where what's getting ready to happen next is between him and this being he's getting ready to be confronted with and he says, I was in the spirit. And then he says, I'm on the, and it's in the, on the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? That would have been Sunday. Now the church worships, the reason you're gathered here on Sunday is because when Jesus resurrected and the new church began in Acts 1 and 2, they chose to worship on Sunday because that was the day that he resurrected on Sunday morning. So every time the church gathers, we are celebrating the resurrection. We don't have to wait to Easter to do that. We get to do it every Sunday. So he says he is on the Lord's day, which is Sunday. He is in some kind of dream trance-like state. And then look what happens. He says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And this is where we begin to get into some of this imagery. Where John is trying his dead level best to describe to you and I and the churches in, in Asia Minor what he's experiencing. And that's exactly what Jesus told him to do. Write down everything you're experiencing. So what we're going to have with John is what he saw, what he heard. If John smelled something, I think he would have wrote it down. That's how detailed this is. And he says, in that moment, I heard a voice behind me, but it was like a trumpet. What is, why is he saying that? Well, the first thing he, he shows us is the voice that he hears is a powerful voice. Trumpets were used in the celebrations of the Israelite people. And all of these festivals and these high days, the trumpets were utilized in all kinds of ways to get the attention of the people. And it was very effective. Uh, my wife and my family, we've had the opportunity to be at Arlington Cemetery. And we've been there at the Tomb of the Unknown. And if you're anywhere in that vast cemetery, if you hear a trumpet, your attention goes straight to it every time. John says... He hears a voice, it's, it's a voice, a discernible voice, but it's so loud and so demanding and so commanding that it's like a trumpet. In other words, John says, this voice now has my full attention. There is nothing else dividing my attention from this voice. So it was a powerful voice. It was a voice that commanded him. It demanded attention. And then notice what the voice says. 
The voice says to him, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So this powerful voice has a task for John to perform. And he tells John, write down everything that you see, everything that you hear, write that down, and you're going to send that to seven literal churches in Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. And those seven churches are listed out. And they're listed out in order that if a, a courier would have taken this letter, and certainly this letter would have been carried to these seven churches, and copies would have been distributed, and, and the first church they would have approached when they left the Isle of Patmos would have been Ephesus. And then in almost like a, a kind of like a semicircle or almost like a comma, every one of these churches, in the order you see them, is how the letters would have been delivered, with Ephesus being first and Laodicea being last. Verse 12, then, as all of us would do, John is curious. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, one of the things that is causing your pastor a whole lot of work, (laughs) uh, I do a lot of work every week to prepare for this, but man, Revelation is demanding, it's taking a toll because of all the imagery that he uses that goes back to the Old Testament. You may not see the Old Testament quoted, but you will see the imagery of the Old Testament over and over and over again. And there's no way that you can understand the book of Revelation without going back into the Old Testament, specifically the prophets, Daniel in particular, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Isaiah. We're going to be looking, we're going to be going back there quite a bit in the days and weeks ahead. So here we have an image of something that John sees, and the image that he sees is seven golden lampstands. Well, if you go back to Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10, you don't have to turn back there. You have Zechariah the prophet talking about an image that he saw very similar, and and there that image kind of gets interpreted that, that the image that Zechariah saw, which is very similar to what John is seeing, represented the eyes of God that would seek through the earth and watch all that was happening. That's what Zechariah heard. Here we have the same imagery, but I want you to notice the next part, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now here's what we have. We have seven golden lampstands, and then when John looks, there's a being standing among those seven lampstands. Well, fortunately... In this text, Jesus tells us in verse 20 exactly what the lampstands mean. It represents the seven churches that he's sending these letters to. But here's what we really got to see. Not only did John hear a powerful voice, but now he sees the presence of the king among his churches. If the golden lampstands represent the churches, and Jesus is standing among the lampstands, and we know from Zechariah 4 that, that the idea of lampstands is God seeing all that his people are up to. Here's what we end up with. We have the Savior, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who is intimately connected to the body, his church. Folks, Jesus is not off paying attention to the cosmos. Jesus is not off making sure the earth stays in orbit. Now, Colossians tells us that he holds all things together, but let me tell you where Jesus has focused his attention. He has focused it on this body of believers and every other body of believers all across the world that stand upon his word, the church, the body. And not only is he focused on the church, and not only is he among the church, here's the real thing we got to pay attention to. He knows what's going on in his church. 
Hey, he knows if things are being mishandled in this church. He knows if we're wasting resources. He knows if we're good stewards or not. He knows if we're standing upon the truth of his word or not. He knows, he knows the very hearts and intentions of the leadership and the servants and the members and even you who are here today. He knows all about you. A powerful voice leads to an imagery of his presence among the churches. And John uses a, a phrase that, that Jesus loved to reference himself, the Son of Man. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, we see this term, the Son of Man. Ezekiel, all through the book of Ezekiel, our women have, been, have walked through the, a study in the book of Ezekiel, bless their hearts, that's a tough book. But in that book, they saw the Son of Man. Jesus used that term describing himself 43 times in the Gospels. What does that term mean? It references his humanity. It references the fact that when Jesus stood in front of Lazarus' tomb, he cried. And it, it reminds us of the reality that Jesus got tired physically and would have to pull away from the crowds. It reminds us that, that Jesus would eat bread just like you eat bread. And it reminds us that Jesus had a body that you could touch that felt pain, that every whip of every, of every soldier, every punch, every kick, he felt it. So what Jesus would say, Referring to himself, he's a son of man, a son of David, son of the line of the tribe of Judah. He's the son of man. And here John says he's like the son of man, but he's not just a son of man. You're going to see that. And his presence is among his churches. These seven churches that he has some messages for, but every church that is surrendered to the gospel and to his word. So we have the powerful voice. We have his presence among the churches. Notice what happens next. We get into verse 12, and it says, Then I turn, I see the voice speaking to me, and I turn and saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the golden lampstands, like a man, like, a, like one of the Son of Man, clothed, here it is, with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So when John describes the dress of this individual, he has a long robe and a golden sash. You don't have to go back far in the Old Testament to find that that is the garments of the high priest. John, when he describes Jesus, he's describing him as the high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Not only did he provide the atonement, the covering, the blood sacrifice, which happened to be him, but he also intercedes for his people. What does that mean? It means that when we pray, Jesus takes those prayers, petitions the Father on our behalf. Yes, we have access to the Father. Jesus provided that. But Jesus fulfills this role of high priest, of being able to stand between us and God the Father and, and plead our case to God the Father as intercessor. That's why he's so close to the churches. You are going to be shocked. You're going to be shocked when you stand before Jesus one day and he knows every fine detail of your life. He's going to know the tears that you shed that nobody else saw. He's going to know what broke your heart. He's even going to know the questions you've got. He's heard every prayer you've ever called out. Even if it was just that prayer, Lord, help me. You got it a moment, you, you couldn't even pray, but in that moment, all you could say is, Lord, help me. He heard it. He knows exactly what drove you to that moment. He knows every intimate, intimate detail because he is your high priest. And he loves you so much that the high priest died for you, 
as a lamb, as a covering, to provide forgiveness and reconciliation to the God who loves you. So he is powerful. His presence is among the church. He is a priest to his people. Notice what else we see. It says, verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Now we have to, we have to wrestle with this one because in our culture, when we hear of someone with white hair, our culture, this is what our culture thinks, our culture thinks, that, oh, they're, they're no longer useful. I'm, I'm about to join you. I've got some of that wisdom coming out. But American culture is really unlike any other culture in the world. You take the Chinese culture, you take the African culture, someone with gray hair, someone who is advanced in years is revered, is honored. Why? Because of the wisdom that they have. In, in Asian culture, when the senior grandparent comes in, everybody in the home stops what they're doing and allows that person to come in and sit down, and that person is served first before anyone else is served. But in our culture, when we see someone who is advanced in years, whether they have gray hair or not, our younger people would be, tend to think, well, they're no longer of any use. They don't have anything to add anymore. They've outlived their usefulness. Let's, let's just put them away somewhere. By the way, our culture needs to repent of that. We need to repent of that, and we need to honor those who have the wisdom of life. John sees Jesus here, and he has gray, white hair. We don't need to get caught up in, well, is Jesus like some old man now? What's, what's up with that? It's not, how, it's not how John saw Jesus when he ascended back. It's not the point. The point is, is what John sees in this moment is a man full of wisdom, a man full of, of words that needs to be shared with the church that John needs to intently make sure that he pays attention to. In John's culture, someone with gray hair demanded all of your attention, demanded all of your focus, demanded all of your service. So in that moment, John sees Jesus, and he is profoundly wise. He is ready to speak truth. He's ready to lead. He's got the maturity to call the shots, and he's the one you need to be listening to, which gets us to the next part, verse 14. It says his hair was white. It says his eyes were like the flame of fire. His eyes are penetrating. His eyes are able to penetrate the walls that you've built around your heart the lies that you're telling yourself and telling everyone else about what you believe. But in fact, behind that wall, you believe something totally different. Jesus' eyes is able to penetrate all of that garbage, and he knows who you really are. You can't hide a thing from him. Daniel chapter 10. You read that portion of Scripture. Daniel has a vision of the Lord. And when you read Daniel hundreds of years before John on the island of Patmos, here's what you find. They saw the same thing. And Daniel says that it was the eyes. It was one of the things that he saw that, that penetrated his heart. John says that his eyes, that there's nothing hidden from his gaze. There's nowhere you can run. There's no sin you can get involved in. There's no addiction you can take on. There, there's no, there, nothing you can put on to hide it. You can hide stuff from your spouse. You can hide stuff from your boss. You can even hide stuff from your staff, and I'm not even sure how that works. But trust me, you're pretty good at hiding, but there's one thing you will not hide, and there's one person you will not hide from, and it's Jesus and the Godhead Trinity. He sees it all, knows it all. So shouldn't we start being honest about what's really going on? 
Don't, don't you think it's time that we, that we actually be honest about what we, what we think and what we feel about God? Well, look, you may be a stone-cold atheist. You may absolutely be here today or watching online, and in your mind, there is no God, and the only reason you're here today is because somebody taught you into it, or the only reason you're watching online is somebody taught you into it, but you have no belief in God whatsoever. Make sure you understand that God knows how you feel about him. I would even dare you to talk to him about it. Seems rather counterproductive, right, if he doesn't exist? He can handle it. Christian, you may be struggling with your faith right now. Your father already knows. My dad had this unique ability to know what I'd already torn up before I talked to him about it. I have a little bit of that insight now, believe it or not. Not because I'm God, far from it, but just life experience. My dad, he typically knew what I'd done wrong before I ever told him. He's just waiting on me to tell him. Guess what? Your heavenly father knows far more. He's doing the same thing. Penetrating eyes. There at verse 15, he says his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. We look back at some of the Old Testament references, we see kind of the same thing. And John's talking about the solid footing that he sees in Jesus. Now, why would that be important to these churches in Asia Minor? Well, they're under an emperor called Domitian. Domitian changes his mind about every other day about what is wrong and what is right. Remember, he's declared himself as God. So the churches never know where they are in relation to the emperor. One day, he's got a thing on their head to kill them. Next day, he may be tolerating them a little bit, but he's, he's, as, he's varied as much as the wind is blowing. He's all over the place. Nobody really knows what day the emperor is going to be in a good mood or a bad mood. In bad mood, if he's in a bad mood, he may take your head off. Constantly changing. Changing the law, changing what is true, changing what he expects of you, changing your taxes, changing everything. John looks at Jesus, he sees this burnished, polished feet. And, and, and from that we see that Jesus does not change. What he said was true when he walked this earth is still true today, regardless of what our culture feels about it. Jesus is not concerned about how you feel about what he thinks. Jesus is not concerned about your feelings when it comes to the truth. The fact is, the truth is the truth. And it doesn't change. This imagery that John has speaks of his permanence. But the emperors of Rome were anything but. Keep in mind, at any day, the emperor's son is going to rise up and stick a knife in his back, not particularly Domitian, but this happened over and over again with the emperors. A, a son or a family member, they plot and kill the guy. Next thing you know, you got a new emperor. He may be worse than the previous guy. So John says to the churches, he says, look, this vision that I saw is a vision of a, of a king who never changes his mind. He's not capricious. He's on solid ground and solid footing. Notice what else he says. He says his voice was like the roar of many waters. We talked about his voice earlier being the, a voice that was like a trumpet. Now John goes back to that and says the voice of many waters. Many of you have been to Niagara Falls. I've never been. I saw a YouTube video. I'm sure it's the same thing, right? It's got to be the same. Anyway, I've heard it described that at Niagara Falls, you can hear it long before you ever get to it. When you get to it, it's almost overwhelming, the sound of the power. Someone described it as they could feel it in their chest, all that water coming over the edge. Breathtaking. John says that Jesus' voice is like the roar of like Niagara Falls. 
It demands attention. But notice in verse 16, he says, in the right hand, he has seven stars. Man, this is an incredible image, isn't it? So John, John sees all of this, and then in Jesus' right hand is seven stars. Fortunately, again, Jesus gives the, the interpretation of this. Later in verse 20, he says that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. That the seven stars represent the angels. The angels. Okay, now, if you, well, go ahead and look down to verse 20. Look at this. Just look at it so you not take my word for it. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So here, here's an interpretive pitfall. We don't watch this. He doesn't necessarily say there's seven angels. Now, we, we might infer that. Well, we got seven stars. We've got seven lampstands, and these stars represent seven angels, but that's not what he said. He said seven stars represent angels. There could be seven. There could be 700. There could be seven million. I don't know. Just be careful with that. Read it closely. So what does he mean by the seven angels? Or There I go. See what I just did? The seven angels. What does he mean by the angels for these seven churches? Well, there's two major possibilities. One is these are literal angelic beings that maybe have been assigned to these churches. Man, that's a powerful thought, isn't it? Then if it was assigned to these seven churches, and we know that this letters, these letters are meant for all churches, is it possible that churches have an, maybe an angel, a messenger, a protector assigned to them? Maybe. Here's the other option. The other option is, is and these folks who interpret this way focus on the messenger side of it. They say that the angels represent the messengers in the churches, the pastors. So here's what we can derive from that, that your pastor is an angel. Everybody laughs when I say that. I don't know. And you know, the biggest laugh I got this morning was my wife sitting right there. And Kim Campbell sitting in the back back there. She has to work with me. Paul, don't you laugh, bro. Did I just hear a laugh over here? I think I <laughs> Sorry. Well, he has to work with me too. Here's where I come down on it. I think he's talking about literal angelic beings. Why? Because I don't find anywhere else in the New Testament where pastors, elders are considered angels. I don't see that text used anywhere else. So I'm coming down on this side over here that, that maybe he's talking about literal, actual angels, and those angels were part of those seven churches and had a role to play, and very well may be that today there are angelic beings that are connected to the churches. How many? Well, more than seven. I don't know how many more. But here's what you need to know about that. That Jesus walking among his churches his presence among his churches, not only is his presence there, but he's providing for those churches. Providing what is needed for those churches. Providing through maybe angelic beings that are maybe stationed to protect, to provide, to guide. We know that the Holy Spirit is our God. We know that the Holy Spirit is the God to all truth. We know that no angelic beings necessarily have that role, but it appears to hear that, that Jesus is using these angelic beings in some form or fashion in relation to the local church. Verse 16, he also says that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, not a literal sword coming out of his mouth. But what he's talking about is the purity, the purity of the word. And also he says that his face was shining. We see the purity of this king and, and what he's saying, what, what's coming out of his mouth is important. Listen, what Jesus has to say, what the Bible has to say is more important than the talking heads on TV right now. What, what Jesus has to say is more important than the blogger who's out there saying what his opinion is. 
about life and your purpose. Jesus is more important in what Jesus has to say and the Godhead Trinity, what they have to say is more important than what your college professor is telling you right now. And I know I've got some in here, Lord help me, okay? But trust me when I tell you, if Jesus is speaking, we better be listening because he's speaking to life and purpose and meaning. He's speaking to something your professor can't provide you. He's speaking to something CNN, MSNBC, Fox News cannot provide for you. He's speaking something that our leaders cannot provide. He's speaking life to you. That's why when John writes his gospel, in the opening of that gospel, John declares him as what? The word. Logos. No one else used that word like that until John did. That, that Jesus is the, is the word of God with flesh on. And if he's speaking, we better be listening. Purity. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Can we just all agree that that's the right response in this moment? As a matter of fact, that's the right response today to Jesus. You're going to see him face to face. Whether you believe in him or not, you're, you're going to have to face him. But for those of you who are believers, those of you who put your faith in Jesus, let me tell you what you're not going to do. Let me tell you what you're not going to do in that moment. Here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to, Jesus, you're going to come face to face with Jesus in that moment when you leave this life. You come face to face with him. Here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to have a laundry list of questions that you're demanding answers from. Hey, Jesus, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Hey, Jesus, uh, did, did, you, did you create everything in six literal days or did it take thousands of years? Look, you're not going to go through your bullet point list of questions that you're demanding answers to. Just like Job, just like Daniel, just like John, you're going to fall flat on your face and you're going to dig a hole and try to get in it because the majesty in your presence is unlike anything you've ever experienced. And that's where you should be then and now. You didn't deserve the gospel. Listen, God doesn't need you. Jesus doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He allows us to be part of what he's doing, join him in the work he's doing, but he doesn't need me. And in that moment, when I stand before him, I'm going to put my face to the ground because he deserves all reverence and honor. He's not your BFF, folks. He's not some little bumper sticker. He's not some little plush little toy that you bought at Lifeway. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in his hands, you'll see the scars. And on his brow, you'll see the scars. And you'll see the power and the majesty and the beauty. And in that moment, you will fall on your face. Amen? Amen. Why not do that now? John is overwhelmed. <laughs> he falls flat on his face. But listen to Jesus' reply. Gosh, I can't, this is hard for me to even get out. Jesus walks up and puts his hand on John. Now, John and Jesus, you know, they got quite a bit of history. Uh, John was the only one who went to the cross with Jesus, watched his body come off the cross, watched it be placed in an empty tomb. John has dug him a little hole, and he's got his face in the dirt. Jesus comes up, stoops down, and puts his hand on John's shoulder like a friend would do. And he says to John, 
Fear not. <laughs> Boy, that's easy to say, isn't it? <clears throat> Fear not. Greek behind it means stop being afraid. And Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the protos. I am the eschatos. Greek language. God said in the previous chapter, previous verses we looked at, what did, what did God say? God says, I am the beginning of the Greek alphabet, alpha. I am the ending, omega, and I'm everything in between. Jesus says, I am the protos and the eschatos. I'm the beginning, the first and the last. Sounds like Jesus is claiming to be God here. I'm, I don't know. I could be wrong, but it sure does sound like it, doesn't it? He says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. John saw that. John was there. He saw it. He saw the whipping. He saw the nails. He heard Jesus from the cross. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He saw the blood run down. He saw a lifeless body come off the cross. And he suffered right along with the others at the loss of the king of kings. But three days later, he's in the upper room. He sees the resurrected Lord, and he's at the mountainside when Jesus ascends back to the Father. John, John knows who this is. There was a moment in John's life where he got to see a little bit of the glory of Jesus. It's on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. James and John and Peter go up on the mountain with Jesus, and for a moment, Jesus allows them to see his full deity just for a moment. And in that moment, all three of them wanted to, to build a kind of a tabernacle there, uh, an altar and worship. And Jesus said, no, we got to go back down to the mountain because that's where the ministry's going to happen down there. We can't stay on the mountain. He's bowing before the king of kings, and everyone will bow before this king of kings. By the time John is writing this, Peter is dead. Paul is dead. His own brother, the two sons of thunder, John and James. James died before any of the rest of them. James was also martyred. And here is this man, 90 years old, seeing this image, and Jesus says to him, fear not, I am the one who died and I live forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. So John, I want you to write down everything that these churches need to know, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how these seven churches connect right back to this moment and the imagery that John saw in this moment. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a caricature of Jesus in your mind? Do you, have, do you have a mixture of truth and error, and you've gotten accustomed to that? Have you gotten to the place where Jesus is nothing more than this pet idea that you have, or has he radically changed your life? Well, I've got an article here I want to read. It's a little lengthy, but I think it helps get the point across. Written by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He's a theologian. He's, he's wrote a lot of books, and... Um, I, I, thought, I thought this was very fitting to help us distinguish, are we following the Jesus of the New Testament or are we following something less than? He says this, this question, the question of who we're following is crucial in our day. And not every Jesus is the real Jesus. So what he's going to do is he's going to give us some caricatures some imagery, some pictures of Jesus, some less than Jesus that a lot of people are following today. Maybe, maybe one of these will resonate with you. 
So quote, and let me just get into the politics right off the bat, right? There's the Republican Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges, and he's for family values and owning firearms. You can laugh at this because some of it is kind of hilarious. Then there's the Democrat Jesus. He's the one who's against Wall Street and Walmart. He's for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's the therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be so hard on ourselves. Well, then there's the Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what. There's the touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's the martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's the gentle Jesus who is meek and mild with high cheekbones and flowing hair and walks around barefoot wearing a sash. There's the hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's the yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and to buy a boat if possible. There's the spirituality Jesus who hates religion, hates churches, hates pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within themselves while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's the platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's a revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, to stick it to the man and blame things on the system. There's the guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you to find your center. There's the boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's the good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. Does any of these, I could go on and on. That's just his list. I could add probably another half dozen to that. All these ideas of Jesus and who he really is. Can it be that you've put your faith in something less than? Listen to what else he says, quote, and then there's, then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they'd been waiting for, the son of David, Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners and proclaim the good news to the poor, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is the Lord and God. He is the Father, Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. That is the Jesus of the New Testament. Are you following him? Are you accepted something less? Father in heaven, the clarity of your word, we are now faced with the reality that we very well may have been duped. We very may well be living a lie. And Father, I believe that you have provided for us what John wrote down at your direction to confront this this morning. It is not 
our place or our purpose to make Jesus conform to our ideas of who he should be. It is our place to bow and surrender and worship. So Father, in this moment, as we sing this final song together, there may be some here today that would have the boldness and the courage to walk forward and worship and bow. There may be some here today that need to surrender everything they are to Christ, the real Christ, the risen Christ. Lord, you who are returning soon that we'll have to stand before one day. Maybe there's some here today that have finally come to the place where they're ready to finally put faith in you and surrender. For others, Lord, that maybe started following you years ago, somewhere along the way, we've accepted something less than a, well, a caricature of who you really are, a mixture of truth and error. And then, Father, we wonder why we're so empty. We recognize, Father, that your word is clear that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Father, may that happen in this moment. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.